Synthetic fertilizer was critical to boosting food production and feeding people around the world. However, it comes at a cost. Student journalists from the Universities of Florida and Missouri spent 16 weeks reporting on the fertilizer industry and its benefits and harms. This investigative series tackles topics from the discovery of nitrogen and phosphorus to their manufacturing supersized chemical plants along the Mississippi River, to evaluating future solutions for food production and dealing with chemical waste. I'm Elliot Trito, your host. Working with me is fellow recent UF Journalism graduate Julia Cooper. Together, we'll be speaking with some of our fellow journalists for a look into our reporting on chemical production that feeds the world and also harms it. This is the Price of Plenty podcast, a How We Did It production. In this episode, Julia and I spoke with University of Florida's Lucille Lanigan and Alan Halali. Lucy's reporting tracked old phosphate mines that have been turned into housing developments, parks, golf courses, and asked the question, how safe is it to live and spend time around reclaimed mining lands? Alan's reporting uncovered information about how vulnerable the southeast phosphate mines, plants, and mountains of slightly radioactive waste are to increase strength storms. This is part two of the Price of Plenty series, Justice. So we got a great episode for you guys today. We have Alan here, Lucy here, and I wanted to say thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. What I wanted to kind of start off with is that, tell us like a brief summary of the articles you guys worked on. Yeah, absolutely. So my story centers around the phosphate industry and how well prepared it is for climate change, which is impacting uh, extreme weather and increasing hurricanes and storms. Really, when we were down in, in Bartow and in Louisiana, and we were looking at all these facets of industry, fertilizer plants and uh, gypsum stacks throughout the state, one of the questions that came to mind was, how does something like this fare during a hurricane? It's something that's a you know, a facet of life in Florida um, and in Louisiana, they see storms all the time. So uh, I just kind of wanted to probe that a little bit more and see how that's changing, looking at the fertilizer industry from that lens. And Lucy, tell us about your story. Yeah, of course. My story looks into kind of what happens to mine lands once they are finished being mined and they go through this process called reclamation. So um, I thought it was really interesting as we were traveling through places like Lakeland, Mulberry, Bartow. You may not know it when you're going through there, and a lot of the people who live there may not know it, but much of the land that they're living on, that they're working on, that they're bringing their kids to the park to play on was once mined for phosphate. And so it's undergone kind of this major transformation. And um, some of the lands you can't even tell, they were once stripped to 80 feet to kind of underground and stirring up all of that dirt. Many of them look like beautiful parks now. Um, Many of them hold fishing lakes where, I mean, people go and they catch fish and they sometimes eat them. And it's, it's really just kind of a wild thing seeing how the land can get transformed. And so with my story, I started to kind of look into how viable is the land once it's returned back to like an ecosystem or or a farmland? And I also started to look at some health aspects, um, just kind of the safety of living on this land where radioactive material has been mined up and then how it's returned in a safe way. So if I can jump in here, I want to ask, since you both are covering the phosphate mining industry, 
what were some of the things that each of you found about the health and safety implications of the way that the industry conducts business in the state? Yeah, my story focused largely on health implications of living on old phosphate mines. It especially kind of focused on radiation exposure and whether those materials that were once mined up then posed a risk to people who were living on the lands after they were kind of reclaimed and restored. Really, what I found was that there, there's an overall lack of recent studies done on radiation exposure and how people who live on these lands or work on them long term are being affected by it. There's been several lawsuits that have popped up throughout the state. Um, one of the most recent ones was in Lakeland, Florida, and they kind of just alleged that these mining companies didn't necessarily properly clean up these sites. And so then they're facing negative health consequences like increased cancer risk, higher risk of just other diseases um, brought on by this kind of radon exposure. Hard to prove like a direct cause and effect thing, but I really just found that there was lack of studies and also a lack of transparency. There's a lot of people who are living or working or bringing their kids to play in parks that are were once reclaimed lands and they just don't even know that there could be a potential risk. So that's one thing I really hope the story kind of opens up that maybe more studies need to be done. People need to be told where they're moving to and where they're building their properties and things like that. Awesome. And then I'm going to toss the same question to you, Alan. What did you find specific to your work? Really what I found over the course of my reporting is that in terms of health and kind of thinking about how the industry is impacting, you know, residents that live really close to these facets of industry, you know, most people probably don't know this, but there are in the process of creating fertilizer, there is this toxic byproduct, right? And it's called phosphogypsum. And the way that it's stored throughout the state of Florida and throughout the entire Southeast is in these huge stacks. So these stacks can be either open, closed, or inactive. Um, and really what the crux of my reporting shows is that these open stacks, which have these huge retention ponds at the top of these man-made mountains, it's kind of, it's unclear whether that can have a direct impact on, you know, somebody living through a storm right next to it. But Kind of similar to what Lucy was saying, when I went around to people who lived right in the direct view of, um, you know, the gypsum stacks throughout the state of Florida and in Louisiana, some of them didn't even know what a gypsum stack was. They didn't know what the Piney Point disaster was. So there really is a lack of public awareness, and that's something that I hope, you know, this project can do. But I, I think that, you know, there is just this lack of transparency and uh, communication of risk. You know, in my opinion, if you're buying a property that's right in the shadow of a gypsum stack, maybe there should be a conversation about, hey, you know, this is what could happen in a hurricane. You know, there is never an 100% certainty that there is complete safety living next to a phosphogypsum stack. So in terms of, of human health, I think what my reporting shows is that there is a little bit of uncertainty and it's not 100% clear whether, you know, it's, it's quite safe to live next to these industries while you're living through a hurricane. We saw what happened in Hurricane Ian. Uh, we are continuing to see these storms just decimate the American Southeast. And as these facets of industry get older and older, things like a, a liner tear, which is what happened in Piney Point, can become more um, 
common. And, you know, I think that these industries don't always have the best interests of people in mind. They are about a bottom line. So it's really important to kind of have stories like these communicate risk when there isn't that much information out there. Yeah, well, one thing that I really liked about this project was the fact that like all of us were writing articles, but also together we were figuring out more about the fertilizer industry and also just more about this. Like, I'm sure everyone can agree. Like, we had I had, like I didn't know what the heck a gypsum sack was until we started this project. Alan, this is a question for you. So I wanted to ask, um, can you elaborate more to what a gypsum sack is and it's like and why it's something that maybe not only Floridians but Americans should be concerned about what what it does. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said, uh, phosphogypsum is the radioactive toxic byproduct of producing fertilizer. Um, When you're processing phosphate, which is mined predominantly in the Golden Triangle, which is, as explained in Lucy's story, Bartow, Mulberry, one of the other cities in Polk County, it gets stacked in these huge man-made mountains. Really, what that means is there's people living right on the fence line right next to hundreds of millions of gallons of toxic slurry. And that, you know, in itself (laughs) can pose its own risks. For instance, uh, there's a community that I write about in my story called Progress Village, which was one of the first Black suburbs of Tampa. You know, there was this really big concerted effort to, you know, stop the construction of this stack that was going to be visible from elementary schools and middle schools in their community, you know, it was going to become their problem, their their property values would go down. Nowadays, they are just living in the shadow of this phosphogypsum stack, waiting for the next storm to come by. And, you know, potentially there could be some impact there. There is a really long documented history of phosphogypsum stack failure. While there is there, there is a really concerted effort from industry to monitor this and well-funded companies like Mosaic are, you know, doing their best to keep it at bay. And, you know, they do do all these risk assessments and there is a lot of money and energy into keeping these people safe from industry, but there are failures and that that's been well-documented and it does pose a greater risk to Floridians, to people who live in Louisiana, as, you know, there are sinkholes that can open under phosphogypsum stacks and all this slurry can go into the aquifer, into our drinking water. You know, it causes algal blooms if it goes into the runoff into the water. It can cause fish kills and it can cause the red tide. So there really is just this wide-reaching impact, both from you know, the the porches of people who live in these fence line communities, but also, you know, as a, as a whole, we should be concerned about the environment when it comes to just these huge mountains of toxic waste that, you know, could really have an impact on everybody's day-to-day life. And what's interesting about them specifically, there's kind of a debate right now on whether we can do something else other than just stack phosphogypsum. Um, the Florida legislature passed a bill to kind of do some pilot studies on whether we can use it in road construction, which is something the fertilizer industry says it is done in other countries. But overall, there's just this uncertainty on what to do with this toxic byproduct. More than a century now been plaguing these low-income Black communities, people that are disadvantaged and don't have the power to fight against these million billion dollar industries. Um, And we're seeing the effects today with 
you know, red tide, algal blooms. Um, so it really is something that we should be concerned about. Lucy, did you want to add on to that? For mining reclamation, it's a it's a little bit separate from gyp stacks, but obviously, as Alan explained, when when they mine for phosphate and they're digging up this matrix, which is this like mixture of phosphate ore, and they're also digging up clay and topsoils and things like that. And that waste byproduct that has most of the harmful materials is what gets put into the gyp stacks. And then um, what, according to Mosaic and the fertilizer industry, what they're returning back to the soil here in Florida is just kind of those topsoils that they scraped off the top. I guess the issue with a lot of the lawsuits I've been looking into is people are alleging that possibly some of that waste byproduct ended back up into the ground and then was built on top of. And so the concern with like phosphogypsum when it comes to mining reclamation is that if some of that like harmful byproduct were to end up, which um, Mosaic Mosaic is very confident that in their reclamation process, that does not happen, that they're, they're only returning kind of those topsoils that don't have harmful materials. But there's other um, mining companies that have been responsible for some reclamation products. If that harmful material were to be returned, that would obviously create a health impact and also just kind of affect, especially when they're trying to like rebuild these ecosystems. I know they try to do a lot of wetlands or um, even some kind of like dry land scrub forests um, that could end up impacting uh, animals and their ability to kind of thrive on this this land because obviously that material would would be harmful. I actually have something to add on to this from you know the history perspective I looked into the history of phosphate mining in Florida um, and one of the issues with reclaimed lands is that the active mining companies that we have in the state now, Nutrient and Mosaic, are kind of the amalgamation of a lot of different historical mining companies. And so we don't know, you know, who is and isn't responsible for what reclaimed like legacy lands are out there. So the older mines, we don't know as much about than we do with the more current Mosaic reclaimed lands. And then another thing I can say about that as well, you know, as Julia said, there's all these companies that there's these this disaster, then they go bankrupt, and then there's uh, a new company. And, you know, Mosaic and Nutrient is the amalgamation, like you said, of all these different companies that um, did go bankrupt. And that can be particularly problematic with gypsum stacks. In my reporting, I talk about the two in Pascagoula, Mississippi, that Mississippi Phosphate Incorporated um, went bankrupt. And then there was all these spills and just a long legacy of what happened. And then it became a super fun site. And um, it's now the EPA's problem. So, and that's not the case in Florida, but there is, you know, this idea that once the, the business is over, what happens to these huge mountains of waste? In Florida, it became Mosaic's problem. Uh, they kind of are are over some of the other ones that were from Cargill and other companies that are no longer. Um, but, you know, there is this question of what do we do with fossil gypsum stacks now that the company is no longer in business? So with that, uh, I wanted to, so from your guys' perspective, tell us about um, New Orleans, the trip happened and how it had a really big impact in your article. For me, I'd say what was the most impactful was hearing from some of the activists in, in St. John's Parish, where I hadn't been before, I had never been to Louisiana, and just kind of seeing how they live at the crux of so much industry uh, really put in perspective how 
you know, fertilizer is just one of the industries that are impacting human health um, throughout the American Southeast. It's not just fertilizer, it's petrochemical plants, it's oil and gas. And I guess it just gave me some perspective hearing their stories and particularly what was most interesting in terms of my reporting was kind of asking them about hurricanes. You know, is are people asking the question of what happens when you live within a three mile radius of seven different types of plants? And there's a huge, you know, category five storm that comes by. There really is no answer. And I think that can be particularly scary in you know, places like Convent where we visited, which is an unincorporated black community where, you know, there still are tarps up on homes from Hurricane Ida. There really isn't much assistance or much help to these people that are being decimated by hurricanes. So I think what was interesting for me in the in the New Orleans trip was going into these rural parishes and, and listening to people who uh, are concerned and don't really know what to do. And there really isn't much out there to kind of help them out. And and again, it goes back to education. We don't really tell people what to do if they live next to these plants during extreme weather. For me, obviously, reclamation doesn't happen in Louisiana, but the people who are living there and are, I mean, basically in their backyards have these chemical um, kind of fertilizer processing plants. They're facing a number of other health impacts. And so it was really kind of jarring to to one, be faced with it, just to drive through these these parishes. And I mean, everywhere you look, it's just a, a, a towering plant with all of this, I mean, steam or other pollution kind of just pouring out to speak to the people there who, um, one, they had close family members who were passing away from cancer or um, while we were on the trip with the Bucket Brigade and we learned about, I mean, the 16-year-old boy who was mowing his neighbor's lawn and because of a chemical leak that they weren't told about, his lawnmower explodes and he he dies. I mean, these people are facing just such a, a large level of trauma that is generational. And while the people here in Florida who are living kind of next to industry aren't facing the same exact thing, I think that that trauma and that these people are born into this land, many of them, and they don't really have the facilities to leave. And so they're forced to just kind of live next to this industry their whole lives. And they kind of just have to bear the brunt of these health impacts. They don't really have people listening to them. And so um, I could see that that was a parallel with Florida. And so because my story focused so much on um, health impact as well, it, it helped me in my reporting for when we went back to, when Alan and I went back to kind of Bartow, Lakeland, Mulberry, and trying to find people. And as I was kind of approaching people I wanted to talk to for the story, it helped me just to, I guess, better facilitate those interviews Obviously, you you feel a huge sense of empathy when you're talking to these people who um, either they've been sick or they've lost family members to cancer or they're they're dealing with just kind of the impacts of living in these lands. And so it really helped me to kind of go back and speak to the people that I was speaking to who um, I, I spoke to a woman who had had breast cancer and had multiple neighbors who had passed away from cancer and just to kind of meet her with a level of empathy and understanding and to really just kind of listen to her story. And, and Louisiana really helped me to, to just face head on just the impacts. I think as a reporter, it's important to not 
not distance yourself from what you're reporting on because I mean these are people's real lives and you have to approach these stories with with a level of empathy and so the Louisiana trip was just really eye-opening. And then I guess just like one thing to add to that too is when we're talking about education in these communities I mean these industries everybody within the whole parish works and they 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 are so tied to these industries that they don't want to speak bad about them. It's a part of their lives. And they don't really have the knowledge to fully understand that, you know, there could be a link between these industries and their health problems. What was interesting for me is, is knocking on doors in places like Donaldsonville, Louisiana, is kind of approaching people with and, and meeting them where they are. I mean, you can't just go hot in hot and just say, what do you think about this industry that could be causing your health problems? But it's important to, with the added context of, of knowing how embedded industry is in these communities, to approach with a sense of empathy, like Lucy is saying, um, and really have a, a holistic understanding of just the idea that not everybody is going to be anti-industry and that just because there could be these potential impacts doesn't mean that people know about it. So, and those are still valuable voices. Something that we want to do with this podcast production is really bring listeners into our process of reporting. And so I wonder if one or both of you can speak to what each of the steps of these various trips that we made were, and then kind of what your biggest takeaway from each was. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> um, so initially we went to Bartow, uh, Florida with little to no knowledge of the phosphate industry. You know, we we knew we were doing something on the fertilizer industry and we knew we were working with students at the University of Missouri. Um, we didn't really have our story ideas formulated quite yet, but being able to tour the Four Corners facility owned by Mosaic and really see what the industry is all about first was really valuable i think you know some some members of the class might disagree kind of seeing the industry perspective first could give a semblance of greenwashing or or something that you know is just really one-sided but i think being able to see their argument first was instrumental in in formulating those story ideas so we did that that weekend trip there we we kayaked the peace river we were able to kind of just understand what phosphate country is and and just see the impacts and meet with people and advocates. Um, so that was really valuable at the beginning. And then, you know, we went to New Orleans to see the processing side. We saw uh, Mosaic's Faustina plant. We were able to see the Uncle Sam plant as well. Um, and also just really meet with these activists to um, kind of get their stories and, you know, admit that ended up being part of our reporting as well. And then, you know, Lucy and I also did individual trips. I went down to Progress Village um, myself to kind of talk with some of the people that live in the community. I was able to attend an environmental health fair put on by one of the main characters in my story, Walter Smith II, which was really valuable to see, you know, what people do know about how the industry is impacting their health and what's still left to be discovered. And then Lucy and I also went back to the Golden Triangle to kind of do a little bit more in-depth uh, reporting 
getting, you know, scene setting details, talking to just people that were hanging out and doing their thing on, on reclaimed lands. So that was really valuable, I guess, not, not only in getting more sources, but to kind of get those scene setting details and, you know, be able to write about the industry with authority. All these trips in conjunction with each other gave us a really clear picture of what the industry is, what their side is, what the side of activists are, and kind of finding our own truth amidst all of the different perspectives, which is the job of a journalist. I do want to hear your perspective on your individual trip. When you went down again, separate from the class, what were you looking into? For both of the trips that we took with the class, um, while they were they were really like helpful and eye-opening. I didn't have too much on reclamation specifically. I had been doing all of this reading and research on reclaimed sites, and I knew that I wanted to visit them. The one site that I went to that we spent the most time on was the, the Tenorock Fish Management Area. And so we, we kind of pull up to this site. Alan and I were very nervous. And the first thing that greets us is a gun range. So we knew that we were, you know, in in a far off land kind of, it felt like, but we went into this gun range and we kind of introduced ourselves and what we were doing. And we were met with these, these guys who obviously worked there. And one of them had kind of grown up in the area, had worked on that site. His father had worked on that site. He lived right around the corner, um, most likely lived on reclaimed land, although I couldn't confirm that. So it was really cool to just kind of be on that site and talk to people who'd really lived there their whole lives. Another woman I spoke to was um, bringing her grandson there to go fishing. And they they do that every other weekend. And he, he loves to fish. And so for these people, this reclaimed site represented something really good. It, it showed them that the industry wasn't just kind of coming in and destroying land and leaving it kind of destruct or destroyed. And so instead they were kind of um, returning the land to something that people could go and enjoy. And so the Tenorock site was really beautiful. Um, Speaking to this woman was so nice because she she was just happy to be there. Her grandson loved to be there. And it was was kind of eye-opening just to see that um, while I was looking into possible, I guess, negative impacts or concerns with these sites, there's all, also this really positive aspect where, I mean, the, the mining industries are trying to kind of restore the lands that they're destroying. Um, they're constantly developing new technologies to, to make sure that this reclamation process is improving each time. And um, I think sites like Tenorock uh, are a really good example of how um, maybe these reclaimed lands can be a really great thing for people. There are studies on this site that that raise some alarms for just radon exposure, but once again, they're they're pretty outdated. So um, it was just it was cool to be able to go back and spend a lot of time on these lands, see them with my own eyes, and and talk to people who spent a bunch of time there. Because obviously, um, I just learned about reclamation this past semester; it was all new to me. So it was really important to to speak to people. I mean, this is just a part of their everyday lives. I wanted to know what are some, this might be a cliche question, but what are some of the biggest lessons or takeaways that you took as journalists, but also just like as a human being? And yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, it was really interesting to learn about this industry that has existed in the state that I've lived my whole life and I didn't really know about. Um, And I think that's the case for most Floridians 
you know, it's really important to have journalism like this because when we don't pay attention to what's happening in these rural communities, you know, it just continues. So I think my biggest takeaway is just the power of local journalism and statewide journalism to just point a spotlight into what's happening in communities that don't get a lot of play or a lot of, you know, airtime. So I think it's really important to just pay attention. And I think journalism can help people do that. I think my biggest takeaway and something that I will definitely carry with me as I can go into like a, a professional reporting job, but, and it's something that Professor Barnett always emphasized to us, but as a journalist, you should really broaden your definition of what makes an expert. I think it's really easy to just go immediately to scientists or department officials from the Department of Health, or it's important to understand that like I said, people who have spent their whole lives in these areas are going to be experts of the land that they live on. When we were in Arcadia and we, or we were getting a guided tour from a man who had grown up on the Peace River, I mean, he could pull like rocks out of the water and immediately tell you like what prehistoric creature it came from. I mean, he was an expert of the Peace River and he had seen the impacts of the industry over time. Um, just like in Louisiana, we were speaking to, to people who had lived their whole lives there activists who had poured so much time into helping helping the people in the communities in these areas. I mean, they, they're also experts um, and they, they know so much about the industry, its impacts, and um, they're facing the direct impacts. And so just really making sure that whenever you're approaching stories like this, you're not only focusing on, on scientists and their jargon or, or department officials who may be not paid to say certain things, but you know, they they have answers for these things and their practice developed PR answers. So um, really just broadening your idea of an expert. And that could be just someone who is bringing their grandson to fish in a lake because she comes here every weekend. So she knows so much about the place that she's on. I think it was, yeah, you brought up a good point about the Springs because it was really interesting to like just go canoeing and to see everything and enjoy Florida nature, but also the have as a class kind of look for all these new prehistoric stuff. I also got a little jealous because all I got was shark teeth. The people around me got mastodon teeth and stuff like that inside. That, that was a little jelly, but it was good that I that I learned how it's just like like a living. I keep saying this in previous interviews, but Bartow and New Orleans were definitely living classrooms. I feel like like stuff that we're learning outside of a classroom. So it was very poignant point that I just really wanted to add on to that. Alan stole all of our shark teeth. <laughs> no, I um, accidentally put them through the washing machine. That's the truth. Alan, that's millions of years of prehistoric history that you just put through your washer? Yeah, you know, I <laughs> uh, can't say that I've been reducing all of the harm and risk, but yeah, no. We Well, one other thing we're leaving with is a lot of friends and colleagues that we can always count on, so... That's great. But yeah, that is a good point. Um, one of the things I took away from it was um, making those new connections with with the Mizzou students and and the other professionals that we worked with and really getting getting their insight on their experiences and some of the more uh, professional journalists or seasoned journalists that we we spoke with and um, getting to talk about, you know, the future of the industry, us being new and kind of stepping into a changing industry. Um, and so that was a really valuable experience for us to have, I think. I guess my next question is kind of like 
what's next for you guys kind of so um as most of us like i said are graduating i wanted to know basically what lucy you've graduated congratulations and alan is gonna be here at uf for another year so i wanted to know what's the future looking like for you guys where can people follow your work so um in july i'll be moving to albany georgia i accepted a position as a report for america corps member um, so I'll be reporting on rural communities for the Albany Herald, and I am very, very excited for this position, and I honestly think the time we spent, I don't want to call it in like a rural area of Florida, but it really kind of was just spending that time there and finding out about this huge story that I just had no idea about that was happening in kind of these like I guess not slower, but more um, more rural parts of Florida has really inspired me and made me excited to kind of go to rural Southwest Georgia and kind of uncover some stories there because I'm sure there's a lot of them. So yeah, I'll, I'll be moving in July and I'll be there for at least two years. So if you want to continue reading my work, that's where I'll be. Lucy, you're covering equity in rural Georgia, correct? So just broadly, it's rural communities, but that'll bring up, um, I think, a lot of equity stories. I hope to also write environmental stories. Yeah, I, I would say equity, race. And I mean, that's going to be wonderful because that's that's going to be kind of tied into um, what we were introduced to with this project. Um, so I wish you all the luck in the future. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And not as long term, but uh, for two months this summer, starting in June, I'll be at the Miami Herald covering uh, mostly environment stories. So that's pretty exciting. They have a wonderful team there covering climate change. So you can follow my work there for a while. Uh, I'll continue to write stories for WFT, uh, Gainesville's NPR affiliate, where all of our stories are. And hopefully you will see my bylines throughout the state of Florida. If you want to read my work, read the newspaper. Cool. Is there anything else you want to um, just end with or any anything else that you just want to say before we sign off? Um, Alan, if you want to start, go ahead. I'm really happy that there are initiatives like this throughout the country to help journalists get these bylines. I'm really excited to see what the impact of the project's going to be, whether that's going to you know affect any change. And yeah, just I'm really thankful to Professor Barnett, to uh, Professor Shipley Hiles at University of Missouri for just giving us this opportunity to interact with so many people, whether that's, you know, getting an inside look at Mosaic, meeting these incredible journalists that we can only aspire to be one day. Yeah, I guess I'm just leaving this project just feeling really thankful for our school and what they continue to give us. I'll add on to that briefly, but um, I, I'm leaving this class and this project feeling really grateful for collaboration. Um, I think this project, as Julia kind of said, really allowed us to all work together and we all had these shared experiences, both with our peers from Florida, but also getting to, to meet students from University of Missouri. I mean, they when they came to Bartow, that was kind of, for a lot of them, their first experience in Florida. So getting to kind of watch them experience that and um, I mean, honestly, it felt like we were <laughs> stepping out of Florida as well, just from like a Florida student perspective. So um, I think this project really just showed me the power of collaboration, really working with with your fellow peers and fellow journalists. And I think altogether, the projects come out stronger whenever you take that approach. So I'm very grateful for that. 
Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, and I just want to say thank you guys for doing this and um, good luck in your future endeavors. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Julia. That was Lucille Lanigan and Alan Halili on life near the phosphate mining industry. Join us next time when we speak with Mizzou student Sophie Simon about the work of environmental justice advocates living in what are deemed, quote, sacrifice zones. The Price of Planning was funded by a grant funded from the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. The Price of Plenty is led by Associate Professor Sarah Hiles at the University of Missouri and Environmental Journalist Cynthia Barnett at the University of Florida, with assistance from the Arizona Republic's Joan Miners. This episode was produced and edited by Julia Cooper and Elliot Trito. I'm Elliot Trito, and this is the Price of Plenty Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>